Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, The Sound of Silence, The Hidden Epidemic of Domestic Abuse and Trauma. Our discussion is on the insidiousness and pervasiveness of domestic abuse and the mistreatment of victims by the very people and institutions that should be protecting them. Our guest is author and professor, Dr. Judith Herman. She is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and co-founder of the Victims of Violence Program at Cambridge Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Let's welcome Dr. Judith Herman. Welcome, Dr. Herman. Thank you for having me. Why is domestic violence and trauma so insidious and pervasive still in the United States? Well, it's not just in the United States, first of all. It's a worldwide problem. And it has to do with power and control. It has to do with the subordination of women to men. You can think of violence, domestic violence, as one of many methods that men use to keep women in their place, to keep women subordinated. Um, there's often a misconception that, that what offenders need is anger management. Right, I hear that all the time. Well, it's not, I, I mean, most of these guys do not beat up their bosses. They don't beat up random people on the street. They, um, they have control of their anger. They, you know, they don't just lose their temper indiscriminately. They beat up people who they want to control and where they believe that they can get away with it. Um, and Behind if, closed doors, mostly. Behind closed doors, yes, exactly. And violence is really only one of the methods that offenders use to keep victims subordinated. And sometimes the violence doesn't have to happen that often. There's a saying in the battered women's movement that a, a good beating is good for a year. Because once she's, uh, you'll, you'll hear survivors say things like, I saw that expression on his face. I saw, I looked into his eyes and I thought he really could kill me. He, he's capable, he, he could do that. And once that's happened and once the been beaten or, you know, particularly dangerous methods like smothering, strangling, that sort of thing, then he doesn't need to hit her again. In fact, he may not even need to raise his hand. He just needs to give her that look and she will be on the alert for that look. And so these cues, these cues have been generated over the past because of the violence so that she's actually on notice on that, notice that he could explode or erupt or that she right. should uh, recoil and, from, from right. his that, behavior. He needs to be on the alert all the time. Hypervigilant. Hypervigilant, which is one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, of course, but it means that your adrenaline is running all the time. Um, your whole 
fear system, your system for alert, for danger, is running all the time. And that's why people have things like insom terrible insomnia when they have post-traumatic stress, um, because they kind of can't calm it down. They can't turn that switch off because it's, it's in the domestic violence situation. It needs to be on all the time. This is true of abused kids as well. I wonder if you're familiar with a graphic called the violence wheel. Uh, yes, the domestic violence wheel, yes. It was a, a graphic that for education that was developed by a battered women's program in Duluth, Minnesota. And the in the center of the wheel, they list power and control. And then the spokes of the wheel are all the different methods that are used to keep victims subordinated. So there's violence and threat of violence. There's verbal threats. There's things like capricious enforcement of petty rules, like, you know, I don't want you doing X, Y, or Z. And, but, but she never really knows what it is that's gonna set him off. So she's gotta be what, walking on eggshells. Walking on eggshells, exactly, and not initiating anything. It, it sort of what that does is create a climate where he makes all the rules, and she just has to obey them. Mm -hmm. But she can't herself say, "I want to do this" or "I want to do that." It's sort of like you do what you're told. Now, what is the tipping point, though, for most women when they decide they have to leave? Well, a lot of that depends on social support and economic circumstances. Um, those are the two big ones. Let's talk um, about that social support system. Well, that is so key because what uh, another spoke of that wheel is isolation. He, it, sometimes it's masked as pathological jealousy. I don't want you going out with your girlfriends because I know what you're really doing. You know, you're, 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 you're going to go out to a bar and pick up other men or flirt with other men, which maybe, you know, she has no plan to do that. But what it does is it means she can't go out with her friends. And then he doesn't really want her to see her family because reasons X, Y, or Z. Now, are these men really psychologically unstable so that they have this, um, this jealousy that isn't really based on anything of, of logic or that is tangible? Well, you know, the pathology of offenders is not as severe as, in general, as what we would expect. I mean, a lot of the times um, people will say, oh, he seemed so normal, or he was so well-respected, or I would never has, have thought that he would be the sort of person who would do this sort of thing. So they look good on the outside. Um, and we don't, uh, partly because offenders don't really volunteer to be studied, uh, we don't know that much about them, honestly. Well, the Catholic Church was one of the most insidious institutions that not only kept it quiet, but mm -hmm. perpetuated these crimes upon the most vulnerable by just moving them around. That's right. And 
um, I mean, they really had rings of pedophiles that targeted, oftentimes, I mean, they could, they could target a kid who was lonely, who was um, hungry for uh, adult attention. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. And also, they also targeted very devout families. Um, who wouldn't question. Well, who thought of, of priests as representatives of God on earth. And who would suspect? And so even when children would try to report, they would say, how could you say such a thing about father so-and-so? You know, he, he's so kind. And, you know, he, get, he takes you out to the park and he buys you ice cream. And, uh, <laughs> you know, how... Um, uh, and yes, the, the, uh, it wasn't just the perpetrators, but in that case, as in many cases, the institution that perpetuated it, basically covered, up, covered it up. They were much more afraid of scandal for their institution than they were worried about the well-being of, ch of the children. Um, and certainly and go, that goes against the teaching of uh, any religion. Really, yeah. And, and to this day, I think, I mean, there are a number of survivor organizations, one in particular that I'm familiar with called bishopaccountability.org, um, that kind of traces how, you know, how many of the credible claims that have been made how many were actually how many perpetrators were actually held accountable and it's a very small number um, it's a very small fraction and certainly of the bishops uh, and the cardinals who allowed this to to be perpetuated by simply transferring getting getting the perpetrators out of the communities where their behavior was starting to be one of the things I wanted to bring into this issue is the institutions that have failed. We even see this in our government. Oh, we yeah. see this with our, especially with our elected officials. For example, when Donald Trump, that Access Hollywood tape came out and he said those terrible things about women, most people thought that would be the end of his career. But instead he gets elected. Mm -hmm. I mean, what does that say about the American people? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that patriarchy is alive and well in, in the U.S. as it is around most of the world. And, and to some degree, that creates a culture, a, a deep culture of entitlement for uh, sexual violence, sexual exploitation, sexual harassment, and um, violence against women. So all the whole spectrum of gender-based violence. I, I, I think it also was significant that, that he was running against women to run on the major party platform for president. And I think there was a lot of misogyny that she was vulnerable to, even though, I mean, as a woman politician, you have to walk this incredible tightrope because if you uh, look s sort of stern and uh, businesslike and organized and not taking any crap from anybody, then you're a B-I-T-C-H, 
Um, but if you're warm and uh, empathic and uh, relatable and show your feelings, then you're kind of weak and, um, uh, you know, what about that time of the month? You know, you're, you're, you're not up to the job. Uh, you're not strong. Uh, so it's kind of a no-win situation. And I think she tried to go more on the side of I'm, I'm all business and I just, you know, I know how the government runs and I can do this and I can do that. And that alienated a lot of people. Uh, they, the idea of a woman in charge, the woman being in power and control, was still very threatening, I think, to a lot of people. And I think that was also threatening to some women because a lot of women didn't vote for her. And I find that really very interesting that here is a woman who's highly educated, highly uh, trained, is, has been in multiple positions to know what she would be getting into as president, and then a lot of women didn't vote for her. I don't understand that dichotomy there. Well, I think there was another way that she was actually compromised. But what did compromise her, I think, was her relationship to her husband and her tolerance, not only tolerance for his indiscretion, multiple indiscretions, um, his abuse of women, but her uh, complicity. Um, I mean, she really went along with the trashing of Monica Lewinsky and sort of the blaming of, I mean, here, talk about power and control. Here's the most powerful man in some ways on the planet and an intern who's all right, she's over 21, but barely. Um, and the power, di I mean, the power differential is enormous. And okay, the fact that she flirted and, um, you know, snapped her thong underwear or whatever she did to ins attract him, you know, with a more disciplined person who understood about uh, not abusing his power, he would have said, you know, I, I, I like you very much, but this is not going to happen. And, you know, you're, you're very, very sexy. You're a very attractive young woman. Um, and uh, if I were your age and unmarried, that would be another story. Right. But I'm not. And right. I'm your boss. And she went along with that. And I think that alienated a lot of women. Mm -hmm. Now, the story with Donald Trump, all these women are coming forward um, yep. of some indiscretion on his part. Mm -hmm. We also start with um, Christine Blasey Ford coming forward when, with Justice Kavanaugh, mm -hmm. as did Anita Hill with now Justice Clarence Thomas. Yes. But nobody seems to listen. Why are victims not usually believed or listened to. Why does that keep happening? Well, I think victims are not in positions of power. 
And I mean, in, in the case of Justice Kavanaugh, uh, it, it seemed clear that in some ways, as, as it was with Anita Hill, that the agenda of getting a conservative justice on the court was a power agenda, and it didn't really matter what she said. She was going to be smeared and discredited uh, in the interest of getting this man on the court no matter what. You know, having a Republican-controlled Senate meant that was what was going to happen. Um, but I do think I, many of the survivors I've talked to since then have spoken about uh, those hearings as as a moment of awakening where they realized, you know what, it's not just my private problem. It's a big public problem. And I think the Me Too movement has really begun to organize the voices of survivors so that uh, that there start to be some consequences, so there start to be some accountability. Um, I, you know, survivors have to get together. They have to have the bravery of a, an Anita Hill or a Christine Blasey Ford to stand up there and deal with all the threats and all the... These yes. women were humiliated by the senators. Yes. That should have been really wanting to know what really transpired, but they were more focused on destroying her character exactly. than to finding out uh, yeah. what was really wrong. Not only that, but they, just for the optics, because all the, all the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee were white men, and they didn't think the optics would be good about a, a, a panel of white men all grilling Christine Blasey Ford, which is what had happened with Anita Hill. Um, they got a female prosecutor to ask, to question her, to ask their questions. Now, she was not on trial, but they, but they set it up as though she were with the prosecutor and they got a woman prosecutor to be complicit. And that's part of, I think, the institutional betrayal that so many survivors uh, feel. Uh, you, you know, if they they dare to come forward and then women are part of the system that discredits them. It, 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 it sort of doubles the humiliation and the, 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 the betrayal. Um, there's a, a psychologist uh, professor at University of Oregon named uh, Jennifer Fried and she calls that, she calls this institutional betrayal when the institutions that you turn to for justice, for help, for acknowledgement, um, turn their backs or worse. But each time a woman has this act of courage to stand up, I think it, it inspires a whole bunch of other survivors. Mm -hmm. I should say there are male survivors as well, certainly of childhood abuse. And it's usually by men um, in that case as well. Uh, I did want to mention also that since those hearings and since the advent of the Me Too movement, just very recently, 
we have become aware of a, a new coalition of organizations called the Survivor's Agenda. What is that all about? Well, uh, it seems as though uh, the leaders of four organizations, all women of color, got together on the anniversary of Me Too, and they had collaborated in various projects in the past, but it was Tarana Burke of Me Too, Aijin Pu of the Domestic Workers Alliance, um, Monica Ramirez of Migrant Justice, and uh, Fatima Gus Graves of the National Women's Law Center. And they said, we need survivors to be the leaders of social change, social justice movements, public policy. The survivors need to have a voice in what happens and how, how survivors are treated. Um, and so this is a public problem and we need to have a public presence. And so they, they did a survey of a thousand, anonymous survey, a thousand survivors saying, what are your priorities? What do you need? What do you want? And then they, they did town hall meetings, they did local organizing. Um, and then they, uh, just last month, they had a three-day virtual summit of the Survivor's Agenda. And they had, uh, Anita Hill was a keynote speaker and she said, I've been waiting my whole life for something like this to come along. She said, I haven't seen anything like this before. Because they really, they are combining kind of grassroots organizing, like I think Me Too is now working on a lot of local support groups, focus groups, just getting survivors together to think about to support each other, but also to think about what do we need, what, what are our priorities. And then they're combining that with very detailed kind of policy thinking. For example, we need to renew the Violence Against Women Act. We need to... That's very important. Yeah. We need to uh, expand the Victims of Crime Act, which most people don't know about, but which is a kind of a wonderful mechanism for offenders as a group to give back to survivors as a group. That it, it sets up a, a fund that is based on fines on criminal offenders, both federal and, and at the state level. And that money goes to victim compensation if they you know, if they've lost time from work, if they have medical bills, if they have mental health bills, which lots of people do, um, those are eligible for compensation. It funds victim advocates in the court system to try to make the courts a little more humane and a little more victim friendly. And it funds rape crisis centers, battered women's shelters, all the frontline organizations that are helping survivors. So imagine if that were better known and, you know, if the funding could be expanded. Like, I have the survivors, I interviewed 
said, rape is a life sentence. I th think my offenders should, they, they should just pay a fine once. They should have something deducted from their paycheck every month to go into this fund because I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with my perpetrator. I don't want to get a check from him. But if he gave a check into a fund, a general fund, and then that I could have access to that money. What is the name of the organization? Survivors Agenda. Survivors Agenda. And it's a, it is really a coalition. They don't have one. They decided not to make one organization with one figurehead leader, but because they really they have a different style of of leadership. They don't want one person to become the the figurehead and I mean and th these four women are all extraordinarily busy as it is um, so they want to be their whole their organizations to just be a network which I think is a wonderful way of doing things so so basically when these situations occur when people are abused whether it's children women whoever is abused it's usually because of this power struggle, this unequal bargaining in whether it's the family or in the institution. Right. But I also have found that the legal system usually embraces perpetrators over the victim. Now, have you seen that um, oh, yes. in, in your yeah. work? No, certainly. Um, I mean, first of all, most victims don't report anything they're too ashamed or they're too frightened they've been threatened you know if you ever if you ever go to the cops i'll kill your you or i'll kill your family or i'll you know you i'll, I'll hunt you down and they and, uh, they and the children if there's children they have to be fearful for the children yeah yeah so um i mean lots of people just you know isolation is key if, if they have if they can get their social supports together, if they can get some source of income that doesn't depend on the perpetrator, if they have someone who can house them temporarily, um, they'll get out much sooner. Um, their silence is their enemy. They need exactly. to speak up. Even mm -hmm. though they're told, if you kill, tell anybody we'll kill you, you have to speak up. Well, if you're, a lot of people sort of try to thread that needle, keep keeping it quiet, but just quietly escaping. But then the perpetrator, there are no consequences for the perpetrator. And you probably go on, if he really, if, if he really understands that he no longer has power over this person, he'll go on and do it to someone else. Um, so the more survivors speak up, the more it's possible to begin to demand to hold perpetrators accountable. You know, the other issue I think that I should point out here is that a lot of people, and particularly people of color and other subordinated groups, they don't want the perpetrator to go to prison. They don't believe that prison is gonna make things better. And so, Partly, it's the, what the criminal justice system offers is often not what survivors want. 
They want safety, they want protection, they want acknowledgement that, you know, they have nothing to be ashamed of, they didn't do anything wrong, it's not, you know, that, that she didn't cook the dinner properly or, um, you know, that the house wasn't clean just so, but that he had no right to have this level of control over her and the blame goes to him. The shame goes to him, not to her. But what a lot of survivors want is safety, protection, acknowledgement, but they don't necessarily want the perpetrator punished. They want the community to deal with him in some way so he won't do it again. And we don't generally know what that is. I mean, there are batterer treatment programs. There are some, uh, Do they work? There are some good outcome data, but they do depend on a diversion from the criminal courts. You have to have a, I mean, and sometimes there are domestic, special domestic violence courts that are set up to deal with this so that the perpetrator is required to go to better treatment, not angered management, but better treatment. And good, better treatment is, again, understands the violence wheel and understands that this is about power and control. And generally, the men are in groups with leaders who are gonna challenge all the rationalizations. Well, I did that because she blah, blah, blah. And she wrote, well, she didn't deserve to get hit no matter you know what. And the guys can usually catch each other's rationalizations very well because they're they they've done it themselves you know so if if the court enforces it and and good matter treatment checks in with the women all the time to see you know that that's their metric of success if the woman reports that there haven't been any further incidents that's the good outcome not did they get a conviction um but it, it, even setting that up, I mean, most batterers never see the inside of a courtroom and certainly don't get sent to a good batterer treatment. So in terms of actually coming to grips with the problem at the scale that it exists, where one in four, one in five women reports having been uh, attacked by an physically attacked by an intimate partner at some point. Um, we need a system for dealing with domestic violence that we just don't have at this point. What would that system be if there could be a system that could really treat the, the problem? What would you like it to look like? I would like it to look like first a safety intervention, of course. Uh, that's getting, number one. That's number one, getting the woman to safety and a safety plan. How is she going to, what's she going to do for money? What's she's going to do for shelter? How is she going to take care of the kids? Uh, how is she going to get her health and mental health and the kids who've witnessed this and often been at the, on the receiving end themselves? How are, how is she going to get her immediate crisis needs met. So that's one, is a good 
crisis intervention system. And a lot of times that would have to be based, for example, in pediatricians' offices. Because oftentimes she may not even be allowed to go out to her own medical appointments, but she's allowed to take the kids. Or in primary care offices. I mean, we do a lot of work trying to get primary care docs to ask about domestic violence and or in the emergency room when somebody comes in, you know, and says, you know, she banged into a door to ask about domestic violence. Docs are supposed to do that now, but a lot of times they don't want to do it because they have 15 minute appointment blocks. They're already behind, I mean, 15 minutes per patient and they're on the go day all day long. And which is another crazy system, but let's not go there for the moment. If they do, they don't know what to do. They need a social worker right there on the spot who can meet with the woman right then and there and, you know, on a sort of emergency call, who can meet with the woman, develop a safety plan, uh, help her get into some sort of support group, maybe, or so that she isn't isolated anymore and she's got a, a hotline if there are any more threats or stalking or trying to use the children or however. And then a kind of a community swoop onto the perpetrator that would say, uh, this is not okay. Uh, I mean, this is what's envisaged, for example, in restorative justice, um, where instead of punishment, what you're doing is what one theorist calls reintegrative shaming, where you're settling, no, we don't, this is not okay. And we're going to kind of check up on you to make sure that you're not doing this anymore. And we're going to make sure you get the help you need so that you don't repeat this. Um, and then following up so that, I mean, it's quite controversial to use restorative justice. That's when you get the, the perpetrator to basically try to make amends with the victim. Right. We, they call it reintegrative shaming, where instead of punishment for breaking a law, you're saying you're accountable for repairing the harm. That Does has, this work? Does this work? Well, that's the big question, and particularly for crimes of violence against women. It's, it's an open question right now. There, it hasn't been implemented uh, in any kind of systematic way where you could get outcome data. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more aspirational than uh, in the real world right now. I mean, there, there have been model programs here and there, but uh, nothing that could collect outcome data on a, in a way that would be convincing. And, and clearly it's a big investment of time and energy. Well, why would women not want their perpetrator to go to jail? It, it seems to me if, if the perpetrator goes to jail, they would have more time to get their life together, to get their finances together, to get all these things together. So why would they not want them to go to jail? Well, because a lot of times this was somebody they, lo they loved once upon a time and might still love. Um, but love shouldn't hurt. 
Love should not hurt, indeed, but it's complicated. So oftentimes, survivors have very mixed feelings about their perpetrators. So I've interviewed women, for example, who, you know, went to the police, got restraining orders. A lot of people think those, that's a civil action. It's not a criminal matter. So a restraining order uh, says you have to stay away from her. You can't threaten her. You can't just you know, do A, B, and C. And um, most perpetrators, if they have a lot to lose, uh, I mean, the, the restraining orders are helpful for many people. They don't work all the time. Um, but for many people, they do. And that, they, that gives the survivors a, a breathing space. But I've, I've known women, for example, who their batterer was a pillar of the community. I, when I hear that now, I think, oh, you know, I know what's go on, going on, you know, behind closed doors, but, which is unfair. But, uh, and so he had a lot to lose by uh, being outed. And so he did stay away from her. She, they are divorced. Um, they never meet in person. But she would still talk with him regularly on the phone because she said things like, you know, that was 15 years of my life that we were together. And I want to honor the fact that there was, you know, he was always somebody I could, when he wasn't in that controlling mode, he was, he, he could be very kind. He could be very uh, attuned. We could always, we always had lots to talk about. And so she says she, if he, he knows that, she said if, if he ever got into another intimate relationship, she would feel obliged to warn that woman because it turned out she wasn't the first one he had treated this way. But, um, but she says as long as he keeps his distance, I never want to see him in person because that would be too scary, but I, I like to keep that kind of connection. So, and the other reason a lot of women are against punishment is that they're afraid it'll just make things worse. That he'll do, you know, he'll have, be sentenced to two years, he'll be out in a year, and he'll be even more vengeful, and he'll have picked up more pointers from within the prison system. So what do you tell these women that you need a plan? You need yep. a social support system. Mm -hmm. And what you, else? You need money. Um, and money that's not dependent on the perpetrator controlling it. And oftentimes I've found women who have had a middle, a middle class lifestyle will have to have a much leaner lifestyle. You know, they'll, they'll lose, they may lose their house, they may lose comforts that they were accustomed to, or they... Uh, but they won't but lose their life. They won't lose their life. Their kids will grow up healthier. Um, they won't lose their sanity. Mm -hmm. um, and self-respect. And their, their dignity, their self-respect, and their friends, mm -hmm. and their families. They'll begin, they'll, they'll have a social life that's based on give and take, on mutuality, on equality, not on power, power and control.
when I when I read your book Trauma and Recovery, one of the things I found very striking about it, I couldn't put it down, it was the fact that um, sometimes and often bystanders um, can actually be swooned by the perpetrator, yeah. or they uh, and even um, family members can oh. be duped by the perpetrator. Yeah. Why does that happen? Well, oftentimes these guys are pretty slick operators. They know how to engage people. The savvy operators? Savvy operators, exactly. Um, and they're good at manipulating people. You know, they, they and they, uh, you know, and they'll use their intimate knowledge of the victim against the victim. Well, you know, she was always a little, you know, over-emotional. She tends to exaggerate. Uh, you know, you, you can't really take her word. And she, sometimes she's kind of not all together. She doesn't have her herself together, you know. And, and so you and I understand that that she's a little bit com she's a little bit and people buy into that yeah people do um could I mean, it also be they're afraid of the if they do know that they could be fearful themselves sometimes and that fear gives in to the best interest of the victim well um i think the motivations of are of, of bystanders are you know, the, there's a whole range from people who are just willfully blind, people who are willingly complicit, who, you know, who will say to the woman, you know, you made your bed, you have to lie in it, you should turn the other cheek. God said, you know, I mean, think of all the women who go to clergy who said, you know, that your marriage vows are, are sacred. And uh, so, uh, you know, you have to forgive, uh, and, and, you know, religion is about suffering and, and bearing your suffering in silence. I mean, so sometimes there's complicity, sometimes there's just ignorance. Sometimes uh, people are duped, and then sometimes people, as you say, are afraid. And sometimes people really try to help. Um, but not necessarily in a helpful way. So, for example, if she married him against parental advice, saying, I told you so, is not helpful. Um, uh, saying what, what people want is, how can we help? Just tell me what you need and I will do it. That doesn't happen all that much. No, it doesn't. But when it does, it's like a charm. So what would you suggest? So social, the social circle is so important here. Absolutely. So if, so if the family isn't there, she needs to develop some kind of friendships. Mm -hmm. But if she can't develop friendships because of the family dynamics and he doesn't let her, Mm -hmm. then she needs to do things clandestinely to develop those social contacts so that she will be able to have a plan when she right. needs to leave. Yeah. And sometimes that means 
phone, even before the pandemic, and of course the, the domestic violence has gone through the roof during the pandemic because women are more isolated in their homes. And children aren't going to school and right. less reporting is happening. Yeah, sometimes that means, you know, having that little card that they got with the number for the battered women's program that they hide in their shoe um, and calling when they have, a, you know, when they're, when he's at work or he's out with his buddies or whatever, and she can call and talk to the hotline and develop that plan, get her uh, identification and the kids identification together, think about where you're going to go, uh, is there someone you can alert who will be able to take you in on short notice with the kids, uh, or, you know, should we plan to have you go to the shelter? Uh, so they can arrange the shelter, the hotline can arrange that part? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's amazing they can do that. Well, there, you know, that is one of the wonderful achievements of, of the second wave radical feminist movement. We, there were no battered women's shelters when I was a resident. Uh, people came to the hospital basically to escape. We organized them, rape crisis centers, battered women's shelters, were all organized out, outside of the healthcare system by grassroots feminist organizers. Uh, and then bit by bit, they became more professionalized because if you're going to have an organization that's going to run for years and years and years, you can't run it on all volunteer labor. But that's how they were started. And what year were they started? Do you recall? Oh, 1970, right around there, 1969, 70, 71. Um, and most communities or many communities have them now. So uh, certainly cities of any size will have them. Uh, so people call a hotline. The hotline will know where is the nearest shelter. They can even get a woman to a shelter in a different state if it's need, if necessary, if, if he's going to pursue her. So, um, so she doesn't have to go to the shelter in her own community? No. No. Not necessarily. If she's afraid that he could track her down, uh, and he and, and the shell and the the staff will help her do sort of a, a dangerousness assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, they they can even arrange for her to be in a shelter in a different community. Yeah, you yeah. say the uh, the domestic violence hotline is one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. That's 1-800-799-7233 or SAFE, S-A-F-E. Well, Dr. Herman, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Same. Uh, I look forward to reading your upcoming book. Thank you. I look it'll forward a, to it. It'll be a while. Yeah. Well, um, I enjoyed reading um, Trauma in Recovery. Again, the aftermath of violence from domestic abuse to political terror. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Judith Herman, for sharing her research and insights on domestic abuse and trauma. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. 
For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And don't forget, subscribe online, find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.